I think we've seen them shift from targeting more centralized exchanges to this target-rich environment of DeFi protocol. So we're not only seeing them use DeFi to launder proceeds, but actually targeting them. And we've recently released some statistics that of this year, $1.6 billion stolen, 97% of that cryptocurrency was from DeFi protocol. And 800 million of that uh, we've been able to attribute to North Korea. And that's just midway through this year, and that's still double our, our totals from our estimates from last year in terms of stolen cryptocurrency that uh, we assessed North Korea was responsible for. Welcome back to the Defender's Advantage podcast. I'm your host, Luke McNamara, and my guest today is Jackie Coven, Head of Cyber Threat Intelligence at Chainalysis. Jackie, great to have you here today. Great to be here. Thanks, Luke. So the reason why we're having you on here, and we're going to get a little bit into your background and, and Chainalysis focus and, and what you guys do, but increasingly uh, at Mandiant over the last several years, it seems like we see more and more threat activity, whether it's on the nation side groups coming out of North Korea, the criminal side with ransomware, whereas there's just this nexus of cryptocurrency usage and cyber activity. And so I think it's great to have someone like you on that is specializing in tracking and analyzing the trends in this space. So great to have you here today. And maybe we can start with, you know, what's your background and, and what does Chainalysis do? Sure. So my background, I came from the United States Department of Defense. Blockchain and cryptocurrency were not a part of my workflow, not even in my vocabulary, but I actually fallen in love with the blockchain technology piece first and then discovered the cryptocurrency nexus and how it applies to many of the problem sets that I work on and adds a dimension to the intelligence sets I was passionate about from national security to financial crime to cyber threat intelligence. And Chainalysis is the blockchain data platform. So essentially, we provide data, software, services, and research to everyone from government agencies, cryptocurrency businesses, financial institutions, even insurance and cybersecurity companies. And you can see that powers many different use cases from investigations to compliance, market intelligence, and even threat intelligence. So all of the, this data is really enriching to many different use cases and subsets. And I'm particularly excited about the cyber threat use cases and it as it's being adopted to enhance you know, technical telemetry and indicators in that regard. Well, there's a million different questions that I want to ask you, but maybe where we can start with is... Um... You guys just recently published a, I think it's the 2022 cybercrime report a couple of months ago, if I'm not mistaken. And you also just recently had a, a conference looking at some of the trends in this space. There seems to be a lot of misconceptions that people have when they think of cryptocurrency usage and malicious activity. And this is a burgeoning space. This is a new technology. You're seeing adoption by a lot of different players. Maybe not unsurprising when you think about historical trends of, of technology adoption. Some of those are going to be malign actors of some kind. But there still seems to be a lot of this misconception of, you know, just how prevalent that is within the space. So what would you say in your experience in, you know, engaging with folks around this that are some of the bigger misconceptions of malicious activity or usage of, of crypto? 
Thanks for that question. I, I think blockchain intelligence is such a powerful addition to the Defender's tool set. And unless you understand it and you do some myth busting off the bat, you can't fully take advantage of, of those benefits. So I tell people right away about, about three misconceptions. First, the first one being that cryptocurrency is anonymous and untraceable. And that is certainly not true. And there's many case, cases recently to that effect that of cryptocurrency seizures, of, of tracing criminal, uh, criminal wallets, of, of being able to discover and attribute threat actors behind those wallets in some regards. So that is certainly not true. The second misconception that we frequently encounter is that cryptocurrency is only used by criminals. And in our crypto crime report, we actually found that only a fraction of a percentage uh, was actually illicit. Uh, the majority of the activity is is legitimate in going between you know regulated entities on the blockchain. And and then thirdly, the the last myth I like to throw in there is the misconception that. Uh, cryptocurrency doesn't touch your work. Um, and that was one I lived under for a very long time. And just because you know, cryptocurrency is a new indicator that we've previously never had insight into financial activity of these threat actors. So r- regardless of where you sit, there's somewhere in the kill chain, there was the purchase or sale of a good or service that was able to contribute to a cyber campaign and uh, that is a piece of intelligence that can add to an investigation and awareness about the threat actors, TTPs. Yeah, I thought that report was excellent. And we'll link to it in the, in the show notes. Um, and, and one of the pieces you, you know, touched on there that the report, I think, opens with is that stat about how maybe the dollar value of cybercrime related to cryptocurrency usage, malicious usage is going up. But as a percentage of overall activity, it's never been lower. Which again, you know, working in, in the security space and whether it's ransomware or crypto jacking or some of these other things, maybe you experience the more, you know, malicious side of its usage uh, more frequently. But it is interesting kind of zooming out to that, that broader view that that is actually a decreasing component of the overall ecosystem. Exactly, exactly. And while I focus on mostly illicit activity, I think it is very important to keep in the context of the broader ecosystem, because we're not able to have some of these successes in these investigations of illicit actors if it weren't for the compliant and regulated institutions that are filing SARS, complying with law enforcement in these investigations. So having said that, let's jump into the illicit activity. And I think that the area where I'm most interested uh, to talk to you about is nation state side of this and what better place to start than North Korea, right? There's so much, I guess, that there's we could talk to about that. But in your view, what has been some of the interesting trends with North Korean targeting of cryptocurrency usage, targeting exchanges as we've seen them do, I think since 2016? It's been interesting to kind of witness that coming out of the era when they were focused on more traditional financial entities. But what do you make of kind of where what they've done to date and kind of where they seem to be focusing on when it comes to crypto? Yes. Yeah, so I think we've seen them shift from targeting more centralized exchanges to this target rich environment of, of DeFi uh, protocol. So we're not only seeing them use DeFi to launder proceeds, but actually targeting them. 
And we've recently released some statistics that of this year, $1.6 billion stolen, 97% of that cryptocurrency was from DeFi protocol. And 800 million of that, uh, we've been able to attribute to North Korea. And that's just midway through this year. And that's still double our, our totals from our estimates from last year in terms of, of stolen uh, cryptocurrency that uh, we've assessed North Korea was responsible for. Do you think that's because you know you have exchanges that are now hardening their defenses? They're aware now of the, the threat actors in the space. They've known for a while that they've kind of been the big targets to go after if you're interested in stealing you know significant hauls of crypto. And you have this more emergent component or subsector in the DeFi space that whether it's exploitation of the code based on the applications is a little, a little bit more nascent and, and maybe there's more security vulnerabilities there and it's just like the easier target. I would agree with that. I think it's sim- simply opportunistic. I And I think they're evolving along with the ecosystem and trying new opportunities to, to make money. So what do you think about the overall success that North Korea's had? I and mean, we've seen a lot of reports over the years. I think a couple of the, the more well-known ones uh, from the UN talking about the hundreds of millions of dollars that they've been reported to have taken. And one of the questions I've always had around that is how we, and, and I think you would have much better visibility or a sense of this, but how do we really assess the success of those operations in terms of the overall amount that they've been able to take, given that you've had such wild fluctuations in the price of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies over the years? And I don't know if it's, uh, although I think your report goes into this, you know, it seems like they've held some of that. They've tried to cash that out into to fiat currencies, you know, to support what the UN report and others have, have said is probably to support their weapons program. But it, give us a sense of where you think that sort of, you know, how they're approaching or how they're thinking about, is this just a way to get something that they can quickly turn into fiat? Or do we also see some indications that maybe they're kind of speculating and, and looking to hold a certain amount and watch it hopefully, uh, you know, accrue value? Yeah, I'm not the best for their entire laundering scheme. But I think what we have detailed uh, around North Korean heists is that they are they're updating their laundering protocols. And, and we've actually kind of detailed their, their laundering scheme, swapping coins, which is known as chain hopping. Uh, that is an attractive complication for investigators is, is the laundering through DeFi protocols because you can swap coins in a single transaction. And we've also noted North Korea's increased utilization of mixing services to laundry. So they are adjusting their laundering because they know that you know it's getting harder for them to cash out in some respects. I think some of the documentation from government indictments of those two Chinese nationals that they'd employed as mules, I think shows to the extent they go to to cash out these proceeds using gift cards and the like. So it has definitely gotten more challenging for them to to actually cash out those proceeds. And we have noted that they've they've gravitated towards Asia-based exchanges to to cash out the funds. So they've no not looking at Western-based services because those funds have been highlighted to the ecosystem as stolen. And they seem to really be the sort of perfect use case. If you're going to think of a a government 
that has a, you know, at this point, fairly experienced cyber capability and experience in conducting intrusions. And from what has been reported, you know, over the years in, in other areas of illicit finance, pretty, you know, sophisticated money laundering scheme, you know, pairing all this stuff together, I guess it's not surprising that you would see North Korea be really one of the first malign actors to, to move into the space and to be able to do it well and efficiently. No, and it's been really interesting to watch that evolution, you know, from one cry and even like North Korean, you know, phishing campaigns and sextortion campaigns for paltry sums of cryptocurrency in their demands um, in these sextortion campaigns. But it it is fascinating how they are experimenting with these different elements and the cryptocurrency nexus to it and being able to actually from a single extortion address from a North Korean group or from the stolen funds campaign, be able to unravel the an entire network, even understand different services that they're purchasing, different infrastructure that they're purchasing um, to perpetuate these campaigns. So it, it, it from a single payment address, it really does illuminate a lot about other factors, where are they, how are they building these campaigns and how much money are they accruing? What does their war chest look like? I want to ask you some more here in a second about what you see other nation states doing today in usage or targeting of crypto. But uh, I do have to ask you real quick, because this was another thing that shortly after I think the, the North Korean narrative started coming out after 2016, you saw a discussion around and that was Venezuela discussing that we're going to build our own cryptocurrency called the Petro. Did that ever go anywhere? Because there was this, you know, kind of initial like concern and, you know, we're seeing a malign country try to do this for sanctions evasion. Is this really going to take off? It didn't really seem like it had much legs at the time. And I've not seen much discussed about it since then. But whatever happened to that? Right. Um, Don't hear about that much anymore. Petro, the cryptocurrency of the the Venezuelan government is, is built on the Dash blockchain. Um, and it was really centralized around the government issuance of it. I, I, they they made it the form of payment for pensions and other forms of, of government in payments. But really, I think we, we're not hearing about it anymore. Is it, one because of lack of access to the global ecosystem. You really can't use the petro to buy anything else uh, unless you convert it to another cr- form of cryptocurrency. But you know. Venezuela as a, a a sanctioned country, you know, all of these cryptocurrency businesses where you would be able to convert, you know, Petro to another form of cryptocurrency to engage with the global ecosystem were cognizant of this. And so you could use transaction monitoring tools and blockchain intelligence to um, try to mitigate exposure to to Venezuela um, as the you know, you know, regulations dictate. And then, but I think overall, the lack of trust from the Venezuelan populace really kind of contributed to its stagnation. I mean, it, the ability of you know, the government to monitor usage and understand another form of control of the population potentially. So I, I think that also stymied its growth. So when we think about other nation states that are looking at this and, and using it in some way, I mean, we've seen several Russian groups, APT groups, I think 28 in particular, that has used cryptocurrency to register infrastructure in the past. There's been reports about mining coming out of Iran, but also potentially the Iranian government trying to, to, to clamp down on that. Um, we've seen increasingly since last year, some of the Iranian espionage groups that we track 
that have also been engaged in ransomware on the side. When you think about you know, examples of where you're seeing nation state adoption, in particular nation states that have been known to engage in and carry out cybercrime, cyber espionage campaigns, what are you seeing in terms of the usage and, and how it's being uh, leveraged today? No, it's been very interesting to watch the maturation of, of cryptocurrencies and corporation into cyber campaigns, including Iran being one of them. And aside from, from that, the mining issue is, is particularly interesting as the Iranian government has been fairly friendly to, to miners and even issuing licenses to, to Bitcoin mining uh, in the country. We noted in our report that they've been able to funnel at least 180, 180, 90 million dollars from mining into Iranian cryptocurrency services. So I think they are experimenting with it as a sanctions evasion mechanism. However, they do have a problem with blackouts there and energy crisis. So it is something that they want to, to monitor and control more closely. From the cyber campaign perspective, it's been interesting. I, in 2020, we actually encountered a ransomware variant that we'd never heard of before. And we partnered with a cybersecurity firm to actually trace that payment. And this variant was targeting Israeli targets. So of course, the assumption is that this is potentially Iranian, but when we actually watched the, where the payment was laundered, it went directly to an Iranian cryptocurrency service. So that in this case, the blockchain intelligence was the you know prevailing evidence that this was an Iranian um, cyber threat actor. And since then, they've um, they've launched several rebranded ransomware strains as. Uh, we, we wisen up to the fact that ransomware strains are Iranian or a potentially sanctioned jurisdiction and victims refuse to pay, they will rebrand and until the, they get dinged again. So it is interesting that through this cosmetic uh, rebranding, just changing the name, there's um, we can tell by the financials and the, the wallet infrastructure, oh, it's the same group and, and keep that and, and understand that attribution piece. The other important thing to note about this though is, you know, some of these are, you know, Iranian financially motivated criminal gangs, but it can also be used as an obfuscation technique for espionage. Um, if you think it's just ransomware, and they're actually exfiltrating sensitive data at the same time. And it gives them that plausible deniability to, to obfuscate uh, any espionage-related activities against sensitive targets like we've been seeing with the uh, Iranian campaign against Israel. And I think that story right there really highlights the value for traditional cybersecurity researchers, that's a whole other data set that can augment those investigations and augment that understanding and attribution of who these actors are. And, and even sometimes the relationships between, as we see now with ransomware being sort of affiliate programs, you know, more though the strictly financially motivated ransomware, seeing kind of the relationship between various affiliates and, and groups, that's, I think, a powerful window into the, the back end of those operations and what those relationships might look like. Absolutely. And we've even been able to identify Iranian affiliates of ransomware as a service that may not be authored or admined by an Iranian actor, but they're not necessarily vetting for 
Iranian affiliates in the door, uh, but they the certainly have the technical talent. We, we see that employed across a couple different ransomware variants and a couple commodity ransomware as well. So when people talk about, you know, increasingly the concern that crypto would be a sanctions invasion mechanism, evasion mechanism, you know, we've seen obviously crypto being adopted by nation states like El Salvador, adopting Bitcoin as legal tender. We've seen in the recent conflict in Ukraine, the Ukrainian government uh, soliciting donations in, in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Is it really feasible, you know, taking the North Korea case aside, given it's a much smaller economy and country? Is it really feasible if we do see sanctions uh, as we have against Iran and Russia, that this is a mechanism for really large scale sanctions invasion or because so much of that, especially on the on the Bitcoin blockchain, there's definitely ways to obfuscate. But as you guys well know, I mean, there's there's so much of this that's out in the open and there's you know folks like you tracking these transactions and payments. So is this really a feasible do to, tool to use at scale? And again, this is a great point for me to reiterate that, it, that a small percentage of overall cryptocurrency activity is illicit. And, you know, a lot because of the, the headlines we're able to derive from a lot of these investigations, because of the fantastic insight that we have into the cryptocurrency space that we do not have in the traditional fiat ecosystem, we're able to, you have these amazing insights, which can lead to the perception that this is the Wild West. But there are, you know, the ecosystem is enforcing regulations and compliance. And so we are able to track these funds and institutions are able to understand if they're engaging with a potentially sanctioned entity. Now, with regards to, you know, sanctions has come up a lot, especially with the the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And, you know, Russian individuals and entities could leverage cryptocurrency to evade sanctions, but it would be really difficult for them to do undetected at scale. And the reason that is, is because liquidity and our our research suggests that crypto markets are not liquid enough to support movement of hundreds of billions or uh, hundreds of millions of controlled by, by sanctioned Russian oligarchs, for instance. And this leads us to believe that Russian sanctions evasion using cryptocurrency will likely resemble typical money laundering. I would say probably smaller amounts of cryptocurrency move through services over a long period of time. And that tran- it's because of that transparency of, of cryptocurrency and blockchain analysis tools provide opportunities to identify and shut down Russian sanctions evasion. And so whether you're talking about North Korea, Russia, Iran, even if they did attempt, uh, you know, laundering smaller amounts, it would be something that would be detectable and that could be trackable as well. Moving over a little bit more to the criminal side and on that kind of last point, it's been interesting to me to see where we've seen indictments against exchanges. They seem to have been more of almost like purpose built for illicit activity. Like there are exchanges that I, that I think, you know, going back to BTCE, I think was one of the first ones I remember several years ago, I think a Russian exchange. And there's been a few others and in indictments that I'd never heard of before. And these aren't like very large exchanges. You know, is that where you're seeing, because there's so much of a compliance that most, you know, Western located exchanges have to, to, to deal with that, you know, illicit actors turn to these that, you know, may be purpose built for this sort of activity or really kind of inherently looking to turn a blind eye to that activity? 
Yeah, so these these recent actions, you know, you you harken back to BTCE. We the the designation of SUEX and CHADEX, those were dubbed the the successors of BTCE in a way. Those were were designated. Those were laundering significant amounts of proceeds from ransomware as well as many other types of illicit activity. Most recently, we've seen the designation of Hydra Darknet Market. Blender.io, a mixing service which was used. It was cited for laundering North Korean proceeds from stolen funds as well as ransomware. So a lot of these services sit in the Venn diagram. They're the center of gravity for a number of different illicit activity. And I think we are, it is, it is really an interesting time in that designations are covering more than just financial institutions or you know, cryptocurrency businesses that fall, following into to mixers and darknet markets. And I, I think that's set an interesting precedent. Now, the, the next question is, where do they go next? We saw with the designations of the services early on, like Garantex and Suex, essentially deposits dropped to zero immediately after. So the these threat actors are adapting and moving on to other services. Those are primarily in in high-risk jurisdictions, in, in places where they have little to no KYC requirements, are more challenging for law enforcement entities to work with. But at the same time, uh, those are still those are still visible to us. We're still able to identify them. And at the end of the day, these services depend on the global ecosystem for liquidity and to in order to operate. And so as soon as they're identified, there is the ability to you know, sh- uh, sh- shut them off from the rest of the ecosystem, which is in- inherently damaging to, to their business operations. Going a little bit into the specific cryptocurrencies that you see utilized and looking at threat activities such as ransomware or crypto jacking, and even just kind of usage in underground markets. I think from what we've seen in the markets that we track, focus primarily on, you know, illicit cyber criminal services, people selling data, people selling malware, et cetera. So not looking at markets that may be more focused on drugs or other illicit activity. Uh, but in those markets historically, and I think with ransomware historically, Bitcoin has been the predominant cryptocurrency that has been favored. Um, when it comes to crypto jacking, it still seems to be mostly Monero. Um, that were that we've seen historically. Um, certainly, there's other ones that we've seen, but does that kind of line up with what you've seen? And and I guess I'll maybe a second kind of follow up question to that: Is it surprising that Monero and other you know more privacy focused cryptocurrencies like Zcash have not gotten more widespread adoption in underground markets and illicit activity? No, that's a good question, and I do think the the maturation of the a criminal underground is is been an interesting um, event that has you know helped has encouraged adoption of cryptocurrency amongst these different threat actors and and truly each stage of the kill chain can be can be mapped through a cryptocurrency transaction in a lot of ways everything from bulletproof hosting to access brokers to stolen creds in that that marketplace which has in our view, helped to to drive the ransomware ecosystem to a place where it is today. 
by having the readily available access of you know, the, the tools and services needed to launch a campaign. Now, we are seeing Bitcoin is predominantly the, the cryptocurrency that is used in these underground forums. We do see some forums that are accepting Dash, which is another privacy coin. Litecoin, which is not a privacy coin, um, and Ethereum is sometimes used. But the reason I think Bitcoin re remains the predominant currency here is its liquidity, its ease of use. The price over the last two years has been extremely attractive for the ecosystem. And, and whether it's you're working with other criminal actors in the underground or whether you're working with a victim of a scam or an extortion or some kind of fraud, it is much easier for a victim to source and deal with than Monero. And if you're, we are noticing more ransomware campaigns are opting for Monero or Bitcoin payment options, but most of the time, they're almost always willing to accept Bitcoin instead of Monero, although they do demand a, a premium price there. And, you know, part of that for these ransomware as a service providers, they, they're trying to attract talent to their to their crew and forcing them to use Monero and work with victims with Monero is, is a challenging task. And so it's it's attractive, I think to offer it as a potential option if needed, but also give them the flexibility of using Bitcoin, which is just so much easier to use. So do you see the market share of Monero as a portion of this sort of illicit activity, you know, potentially going up in the next several years, even if Bitcoin remains a predominant favored method? I, I do think it's something to watch I, and, and pay attention to it. And maybe it's not Monero. Maybe there's an, a new type of protocol or new coin. But I this with the changing of the ecosystem, always they're going to adapt to new new networks. We're looking at you know Lightning Network, for instance, as a way to to obfuscate transactions. Or uh, even eyeing NFTs as a potential laundering mechanism. I think there's always the potential for these new technologies and applications to be abused, um, whether for stealing or extorting or even laundering. And so those are all things that we are paying attention to. So you touched on this before when we were talking about North Korea. And again, I would point people to your report, which has, which has a great chart of activity focused on different types of platforms and protocols and notes last year, uh, 2021, just the massive uptick in uh, targeting of DeFi uh, platforms and protocols. Is this kind of similar to what you've touched on with North Korea, just overall threat activities? We've seen increasing, you know, bridging protocols and others that have been targeted uh, just this year alone. Is this an area where it's where there's a lot of money flowing into it, but at the same time, it's pretty nascent. And so there's just a lot of potential security vulnerabilities or the way that some of these contracts are written that actors can exploit i mean is this just that's kind of like the nature of this space where the new stuff gets targeted first especially if there's any value uh, at all there and it becomes an attractive target yeah i think the lesson here is build is to build the security in mind um DeFi protocols have accounted for 97 percent of the cryptocurrency that we're tracking as stolen so far this year and so it is is definitely a place where 
where threat actors are looking as a, a lucrative opportunity. The the next we're also seeing an uptick in NFT scams, thefts, and the like because of the, those vulnerabilities. How the access to to victims as individuals and, and specific platforms. So those are all things to to keep in mind if you're investing or dabbling in this space. So with the caveat that we started with about you know illicit activity is still a small percentage of this, and the fact that. Um, I mean, some of the things that you touched on in, in the conversation so far about, you know, liquidity being very important for for threat actors, the fact that you're dealing with, um, at least in the case of Bitcoin and, and a lot of others, these open protocols and blockchains that enables analysis of where transactions are going. Where do we currently sit in terms of the, I guess, the, how do I phrase this, the, the trade-off or the the battle between analysis and tracking um, and then obfuscation, mixing, because there's always this sort of offense defense equation that I think you've seen a lot of different areas where, you know, like take DDoS over the years, right? DDoS uh, tools become developed to a certain point and then people develop better mitigation for them. And then threat actors find workarounds to make even more powerful DDoS capabilities. And so there's always that constant uh, tug and pull. Where are we right now with crypto with tracking transactions, particularly on, on Bitcoin, where you have coin join services, you have mixers and others that are trying to introduce more privacy features into this. But at the same time, now we have a lot of examples of where researchers and analyze, uh, analysts and investigators have been able to track uh, transactions from, from hacks and compromises going years back, because this is all taking place on a, a protocol. Where do we currently sit right now in this whole ecosystem? Yeah, so I mean, if you look at the numbers We've had a record year last year in terms of illicit proceeds in, in cryptocurrency. We had a record year in terms of ransomware proceeds. And those numbers alone don't tell this whole story. Um, in the grand scheme of all cryptocurrency activity, it is a small fraction of a percent. Um, however, you know we are seeing ransomware demand, average ransomware payments demanded have increased year over year. We're seeing number of incidents increase year over year, but we are seeing the ecosystem adapt because of the law enforcement pressure and successes and US government actions that have really challenged their operations, challenged their ability to cash out and to profit and actually helped identify and disrupt some of the networks. And I think one thing that's, symptomatic of that is the rebranding that we're seeing in ransomware today. All of the the different variants, a new variant almost every day, it seems. And these aren't new actors coming into this space. These are the same group of of threat actors that are just changing the, the name cosmetically of their campaign. And we can actually see through the cryptocurrency activity that this is a, just a much smaller ecosystem of ransomware actors, affiliates, malware as a service providers, bulletproof hosters. Um, and it, it's much smaller than it may seem with the rash of new streams that we're seeing. And I, I do think that the, the rebranding is, a, is an effect of the challenges that law enforcement is, is placing upon some of these networks. 
And um, we can actually tell that they're rebrands based on their financial activity. These Every threat actor or threat group has its own financial signature, which is very loud in the data and allows us to be able to um, see through these, these rebrands and these cosmetic changes. And it's actually a great complement to some of the technical indicators, especially when technical indicators are inconclusive or a threat actor might purchase something, uh, a commodity malware, or may deliberately try to look like another threat actor. You can actually see from the financial uh, data that it's, it's the, the same group or the same threat actor. We recently published a report on Evil Core and the ability to trace all of those rebrands from Macaw to Doppel to Bitpamer through the same wallet. And so that has been very helpful in, in this current period that we're in. We're always going to be in this cat and mouse game. We are seeing the increased adoption of mixers. We spoke earlier about North Korea's increased adoption of mixers in their laundering campaigns of stolen funds. We're seeing more ransomware groups advertise that they have built-in mixing capabilities to their ransomware as a service platforms as a as a way to attract affiliate talent to their projects. Um, we are seeing the addition of more Monero payment options to some of these ransomware platforms or different threat actors that will only deal in certain types of coins. However, like, I think this is a symptom of the pressure that's been put on them and the challenge that they're in. And they're going to adapt to it. And so we're always having to look at what is the next obfuscation technique. And we've recently been able to, to launch a new campaign. It's called a storyline product, which allows us to watch a, a threat actor change different cryptocurrencies. Um, at, it basically unravels a obfuscation technique called chain hopping, where they can jump from different blockchains in a single transaction and it made that much more simpler. So it, we're always going to have to adapt to these, these new mechanisms as they mature, as new products and applications are built on the blockchain with new vulnerabilities that are exploitable and lucrative. So tying this all together, this is not a financial podcast, so I'm not going to ask you to give a price prediction on where things are going in the next year. But for folks that are interested in the activity that you guys are focused on um, tracking illicit activity and, and others in the space, what are some things that they should be looking for? What are some trends you think will be interesting to follow through this year that you think could be sort of indicators of where the overall space is going in terms of this mix of illicit and illicit activity? Things that should be kind of top of mind for analysts that are tracking cyber-related uh, campaigns connected to some of these, these cryptocurrencies and protocols. Well, you brought up an interesting trend of the U.S. government's being able to incorporate more, a broader aperture of services under sanctions designations, I think is very interesting. And I think that is something to look for in terms of how that can uh, disrupt and challenge threat actors' ability to cash out. I think also seeing Maybe it's a, a risk perception of some of the threat actors that encrypting data is now more risky than just stealing data. So 
there's been these offshoots and I'm, I'm not sure which one's going to win out or how the longevity of these campaigns, but the, the pre-ransom phenomena is interesting. Contacting um, a business or organization and messaging them that you have the ability to deploy ransomware if they do not pay. So extorting them in that way. Extortion without encryption, stealing data, these data marketplaces may be perceived by some threat actors as a um, less risky or than than traditional ransomware, um, which has you know brought global law enforcement attention. The I think the other in, interesting development is, and we've seen instances of this you know throughout the years, but the I think the increased attention to insiders by threat actors is is pretty interesting. We've there's been advertisements by some threat actors trying to recruit insiders at at big companies to potentially deploy malware or ransomware but i think these the some of these efforts are getting more interesting and you know from our perspective it it's we like to look at those campaigns that are offering cryptocurrency as payment for such services some of the the north korean activity um that was in the FBI advisory about hiring uh, recruiters and consultants for cryptocurrency businesses. I mean, that is, that's pretty interesting. I mean, and most likely, if I were to guess, being being paid in cryptocurrency, or, or um, so there, the ways that they're you know trying to exploit and break into some of these businesses is fascinating, and and frightening. <laughs> Yeah, the 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 recent um, warning about that from the government, with some indications of, you know, suspected North Korean threat actors trying to get access to certain projects as developers, and sort of you know potentially rug pull from the inside. I think just speaks again to how inventive and creative they are when it comes to attacking this space. Yeah, and you know, with the the law enforcement actions and imposing cost on some of these threat actors styming some of their cash out destinations. I don't think anyone's under the under the perception that they will go away. It's just that they'll go somewhere else. And so where is that somewhere else? And I think part of that question is tied into what what's new, what's coming into the metaverse, what's being built, uh, what new apps are available. And so the, I think we've been able to see that risk calculus in Threat actors blink in a way, if I can um, use that phrase, in in response to some of these law enforcement actions and takedowns. So it's never a dull moment. Well, I appreciate you sharing your insight today. I think this will be very informative. Definitely a space to watch very closely. And I think one again, I would encourage people working in different areas of cybersecurity pay attention because. Even though it does represent a very small uh, piece of the overall ecosystem, it's something that can be incredibly useful for analysis and attribution and threat tracking. So thank you again, Jackie, for uh, taking time here today. Thanks very much, Luke.